Welcome to Behind the Standards with United Rentals. This is a podcast where we discuss construction safety, specifically trench excavation and confined space safety, but also other topics that deal with general job site safety as well. I am Rick Plusinski, Customer Training Specialist for United Rentals Trench Safety. I conduct trench and excavation training, confined space entry training, OSHA 10 and 30 classes in construction, and ATSA flagger certification courses. Now, this special episode of Behind the Standards is a compilation of webinars that were presented as part of the National Trench Safety Stand-Down Week from June 15th to 19th, 2020. A whole week of discussions and events that talk about trench and excavation safety. OSHA promotes this week as a reminder of just how dangerous trench and excavation work can be and highlights the importance of safety in this line of work. We at United Rentals like to point out that trench and excavation work is done safely each and every day. People just need to understand why it's important, what do they need to know to work safely, and how to select a protective system that will not only keep workers safe, but allow for the job to get done in the most efficient manner possible. Now, the presenters you will hear are Eric Jagir, who is a trench collapse survivor, and Bruce McGee, Region Product Development Manager for United Rentals Trench Safety. We kicked off the week with Eric Jagir, and if you ever feel the need to ask yourself, why do I need to be protected in a trench when it's only six and a half feet deep? Well, Eric's story will explain the why. On October 4th, 2002, Eric Jagir was working in a six and a half foot deep trench when something happened that changed his life forever. It collapsed on him. Listen to him explain the conditions in the trench and perhaps think about whether you've put yourself in this scenario, whether it was in a trench or maybe any other type of situation. When we first started putting this pipe in the ground, we started installing it in about four-foot trenches. And when we were working down in those four-foot trenches, we were well within the OSHA's regulations. We had a pretty good soil type. We really didn't have any need for any special safety equipment, you know? We weren't really required to you know, dig the side of our banks back or drop a trench box down there to bomb the trench, and, and we were doing things the way we were supposed to. But as we started on the road a little ways, the inspector out on our project, he wasn't really quite happy with the amount of dirt we had on top of that pipe, and he wanted to see us dig our ditches just a little bit deeper. So all of a sudden, our four-foot trenches now became four and a half feet. And after a couple more weeks or so of being out there on the project, the landscape around us really started to change a little bit, and before you knew it, we were five feet deep. And then a couple more weeks after that, we were five and a half feet deep. And we took this very slow, gradual change from working in this very safe and very acceptable situation into now working in this very unsafe and unacceptable situation. He goes on to explain the complacency factors that led to them working in those conditions. My superintendent on this project, okay, my manager, my supervisor at the time, This guy had been digging ditches for about 30 years, all right? And when he was first taught to dig those ditches 30 years ago, he was taught to do it without that trench box, without that safety equipment, and that was sort of the way this guy had always done it. And he had done it that way for so long and never had anything bad happen to him that he got comfortable having guys down in five-and-a-half, six-and-a-half-foot trenches without that safety equipment. He was so comfortable having guys down in trenches that deep without that safety equipment that he made us as a crew for being down in those trenches off that safety equipment. Besides that, we had been out on this project for a couple months at this point. 
We never had any problem besides our banks cracking. You know, we never had any problem with any dirt falling in our trench. We were getting really good production. Management was happy. We were getting to work a bunch of overtime. I mean, everything was going so good on our project. You know, everything was running so smoothly. We decided as a crew, you know what? Everything's going so good around here. You know, everything's running so smooth. Why should we change anything, you know? Let's just ignore a couple of them safety procedures, and let's just keep going on this road the way we always have been. On October 4, 2002, we were working about six-and-a-half-foot trenches, you know, still just kind of ignoring some of them safety procedures, you know, still just kind of doing things the way we'd always done it. Around 1 o'clock in the afternoon, we had just finished up with a break, and we started digging again. And the guy in the machine on this end over here, he took a scoop out of the ground with a bucket, and when he did, he hit this very small piece of drainage tile that was located right in the very bottom of that six-and-a-half-foot trench. And when he hit it with that bucket, he busted it open, and it dumped, I'm guessing, you know, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13 five-gallon buckets full of water down the bottom of the trench. So we reached down the machine, he scooped the water out, and after he did that, myself and the other laborer I was working with jumped down the bottom of the trench real quick to assess the situation, you know, just kind of see what had happened. We got down there, realized because of that drainage line, it needed to be repaired. So by chance, the laborer I was working with, he was just a little bit closer to the truck than I was. He climbed up out of the trench, go back to the truck, and get a piece of pipe so we could place this thing back together. And when he did that, I got down on my knee in the very bottom of that six-and-a-half-foot trench and just simply began cleaning out around both sides of that piece of pipe so we could make that repair. I figured that labor I was working with, I figured it was out of that trench for maybe 40, 50 seconds or so, and without warning, okay? I mean in an instant, all right? I can't even begin to explain to you all how fast this happened to me. It was immediate. That trench caved in on me. I had no time to run. I had no time to move. I had no time to get out of the way. The only thing that I could do was, is I caught all that dirt coming out of the corner of my eye, and I flinched real fast. I let out one hell of a scream. One, because I was scared to death. And two, I don't know if anybody knew what just happened to me. You know, I told you all the guy in the machine in front of us, he'd already swung around, was looking in the opposite direction, digging for that next piece of pipe. The guy in the machine located behind us, he was also looking in the opposite direction, backfilling all the pieces we had just laid. The laborer that I was working with, he was on his way back to the truck to get a piece of pipe so he could make the repair. And at the time, my supervisor, he was down the road in the loader getting us some stone. I don't know if anybody knew I was buried down there. While I was down there, it was pitch black. I couldn't see. I couldn't move. I was trapped. I was suffocating. I was gasping for air. I was fighting for my life. I mean, less than a second was all it took. And these are the same working conditions that we had been working in for months. You know, we never had any problem with the size of our banks cracking. You know, we never had any problem with any dirt falling in our trench. And all of a sudden, in this day, everything had changed. They say from where the dirt fell, it was like you hit by a truck doing 70 miles an hour. And they figured I had over 2,000 pounds of dirt on top of me. And when I exhaled down there in the bottom of that trench, that 2,000 pounds of dirt settled down on my chest. It crushed my chest. I couldn't inhale. I couldn't breathe. I was suffocating. I was trapped, gasping for air, fighting for my life. You know, I remember being down there in the bottom of that trench, and I remember just kicking and scratching and fighting and clawing and you know, just trying to do anything possible I could to try to get out. But every time I'd move, all that dirt, it just kept packing in tighter and tighter and tighter. And it got to a point where I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything. And I kept hoping to hear that labor I was working with yelling out my name or, 
you know, I kept hoping to hear the sound of that machine from the side of that bank. That way, at least I knew somebody knew what had happened to me and knew somebody was coming to get me out. But I didn't hear anybody call my name. I didn't hear the machine from the side of that bank. And there came a point where I was down in the bottom of that trench where I realized that nobody was coming for me. There was no way in hell I was ever getting on my own, that I wasn't breathing, that I realized right then and there that I was dying in the bottom of that trench. I was never going to get out and see my family again. I was never going to get out and see my friends again. And I was going to die right there. You know, some people think that, well, if something happens to me, it's just me. It doesn't affect anyone else. As the next clip highlights, your decisions affect more than just you. Take a listen. You know that neighbor I was working with that day? He had to call my wife, okay? The wife I'd married just six days before. We were leaving for a honeymoon that night. He had to call her up, and he had to tell her, Michelle, there's been a terrible accident here at work today. I'm not so sure Eric's going to make it. You need to get to the hospital now. Think about calling somebody's family and telling them that because your time got more important than your safety. Because you got comfortable doing things we had always done it, and you didn't want to use that safety equipment. So immediately my wife panics. She doesn't know what to do. She calls my sister. My sister leaves work, comes over and picks her up, drives her to the hospital. They get to the hospital. The doctor comes out and meets them, takes them in a tiny little room. A counselor comes and sits down with them. And the doctor tells my wife and my sister, listen, we don't think Eric's going to make it through this. If he does, he's going to have severe, severe brain damage. You need to call your family. You need to call your friends. You need to get them to the hospital now. So they call my mom and my grandfather, who were just here six days before for my wedding. They live in New Hampshire. They come driving into the mountains of New Hampshire. They have no cell phone reception. My mom doesn't know if we're alive when she gets there. All my friends start to hear about what happened. They start calling each other. Everybody starts calling that hospital waiting room. They're sitting in the waiting line up on the hallway. Every time a doctor walks to the door, they hold their breath, hoping he's not coming and telling them that I died. I was 27 years old the day I got buried in the bottom of this trench, okay? And uh, I had been married for six days. I was flying to Florida that night and getting on the cruise ship for my honeymoon the next morning. And when they got me out of that trench, they put me in the ambulance, um, put me on life support, loaded me in the helicopter, and they brought me into the hospital. When they got me in the hospital, they put me on a little intensive care unit, okay? And because I was being crushed and I had no oxygen, I was very combative. I kept fighting, so they put me into this self-induced coma. And my body was all swollen up. But I had this thing called crush syndrome, and it caused my body to swell up almost two times its original size. And I had tubes going everywhere, okay? And after about a day or so of being on that life support, the doctors, they finally got me stabilized enough where I could breathe on my own, but they couldn't get the proper images to find out how much brain function, if any, that I had left. So what they wanted to do was, is they wanted to have people whose voices I'd recognize come into my room and ask me to do certain things. So went out in the lobby. And they got my mom, my sister, and my wife like seven or eight days at this point. And they said to him, listen, we need you guys to come to Eric's room and we need you to stand next to his hospital bed. When you do, we're going to take him off this medicine we got him on. We want you to ask him to do little things like wiggle his toes. We want you to ask him to give a thumbs up. We want to see if he's able to respond to your commands, but please don't be upset if he doesn't or you don't expect him to. We don't think there's a whole lot going on up there. So he comes to my wife, my sister, my mom. They're standing next to my hospital bed. My body's so swollen up, my own mother can't even recognize me. And the doctor slowly starts to take me off the medicine. And as they take me off the medicine, you know, my family's standing next to my hospital bed, and you know, they're doing everything the doctors ask them to do. You know, my younger sister Erica's standing there. Hey, Erica, she's sister Erica. 
If you can hear me, bud, please move your toes for me. Eric, it's your sister. Eric, I'm here. If you can hear me, Eric, please move your toes for me. And my mom was standing right next to you, know, crying her eyes out. Eric's mom. If you can hear me, Eric, please just give me a thumbs up. Eric, please move your thumb for me. Please don't you hear me. Eric, please just give me a thumbs up. And just like the doctor said, I do anything my family asked me to do, okay? I didn't wiggle my toes. I didn't give a thumbs up. I didn't do any of that garbage. But what I did start to do was start to kick and scratch and fight and claw. Because to me, I thought I was so great down in the bottom of that trench, okay? And because I got comfortable taking shortcuts out there at work, and because I wasn't one of the father safety teachers and get that training, I forced those people I love in my life to stand next to my hospital bed and go through that. I put them through that because I wanted to save a little bit of time out there because I was going to jump and get that job done no matter what. It's my fault my family had to go through that. And I have to live with that every day the rest of my life, okay? I had my 70-year-old grandfather, guys who just six days before was the best man in my wedding. Getting over my hospital bed, my body's all swollen up, I got dirt caked on my face, still. I got tubes going everywhere. I'm on life support, fighting for my life, trying to survive. And my 70-year-old grandfather shaked over my hospital bed, begging and pleading for me, please not to die. He's supposed to die first. That is the reality of taking shortcuts out there, okay? So that was the effects of that event on Eric's loved ones. Now listen to Eric describe his personal struggles after his ordeal. When they got me home, they brought me in the house, they sat me down in my chair, and you know, I remember sitting there in my chair, and I remember just trying to wrap my mind around what had happened. You know, I mean, I lost a couple of days of my life I couldn't remember, and, you know, um, my body was, I remember sitting there, and my body was all bruised and beat up. You know, I had popped all the blood vessels in my eyes because I was being crushed and trying so hard to breathe, and... Every single one of my ribs were broken and cracked. My body was all bruised up. I had punctured one of my lungs. You know, I had cut marks where they hit me with a shovel trying to get to me in time, but I was alive. But man, was I tired. So I said to my wife, I said, Michelle, you know what? I really just want to go in and go to bed. So she helps me out. She brings me in the bedroom. She lays it on the bed. And after she lays it on the bed, she takes the covers and she puts the covers on top of me. As soon as she put those covers on top of me, I started shaking. I started crying. You see, I was covered by over 2,000 pounds of dirt. I didn't want anything on top of me. So we get the covers kicked off. She gets me calmed down. She goes into the room. She gives me a kiss on the forehead. And as she walks out of the room, she reaches over, and she turns out the light. As soon as she turned out that light, I started shaking. I started crying. Y'all remember that 27-year-old bulletproof kid I was telling you about? Well, now I was afraid of the dark. So I'm shaking. I'm crying. My wife runs back in the room. She turns on the TV. She turns on the light. She sits down for a little bit, and then she leaves. After about 15 minutes or so of her being on, I finally start to relax and fall asleep. I'm asleep for maybe 20, 25 minutes or so. I wake up with these terrible nightmares. Because every time I'd fall asleep, I could see it was like in the bottom of that trench, suffocating, trapped, gasping for air, fighting for my life. So I sleep maybe two, two and a half hours a night. After three days or so of being home, you know, I'm dead tired from not sleeping. And you know, when you first get out of the hospital, everybody wants to come and visit you, okay? And I remember all my friends would come and visit me, some of my best friends. And I could recognize who they were. But I was having a hard time remembering some of their names, you know? And people started to plan out a bunch of little things I wasn't remembering. You know, like my wife wanted to know why I put an unopened can of soup in the refrigerator instead of put it back in the cupboard. And, you know, she told me I couldn't use the stove anymore because I could never remember to shut that thing off. And even simpler things than that, like I couldn't remember if I'd washed in the shower with soap or not, okay? And I know it sounds ridiculous. I know it sounds crazy, but I was standing in the shower with the soap, and I'd be like, did I use that? And I couldn't remember. 
So I grab it, wash it again, or maybe it was only for the first time, I wasn't really sure. And by the time I got done rinsing off with it, I couldn't remember if I'd use the soap again or not. Do y'all want to know I was having a hard time remembering all these little things? It's because I have three giant dead spots in the right side of my brain for lack of oxygen because we wanted to take a damn shortcut out there. If you ever asked, why is this important? Here is your reason. Because we don't ever want what happened to Eric or the thousands of other victims of trench collapses to happen to you. So Eric mentioned getting the training and getting the safety equipment needed to perform the job safely. But what do you need to know? Is it just the OSHA standard? Well, in fact, there is much more than just the standard that a competent person needs to know. Listen to Bruce McGee explain the roles and responsibilities of a competent person and what they need to know. So as a competent person, I've had the privilege of doing a lot of competent persons and visiting a lot of job sites. And it's always fun to go to a job site. And I want to introduce myself to the, to the uh, hierarchy of the, the management of the project. And it's always entertaining to ask the, the people who run the job site who the competent person is on the job site. Well, sometimes people don't understand what that term is, and uh, they get offended because they say, everybody on my job is competent. Are you insinuating that my people are less than worthy or competent to be on this job? Well, that tells me right there that sometimes people don't know what the definition of competent person is. In fact, across many parts of the, the OSHA standard for construction, there is this definition for competent person. The competent person is defined as one who is capable of identifying the existing and predictable hazards in the surroundings, working conditions that are unsanitary, hazardous, and dangerous to employees, and the competent person also has the authority to take prompt corrective measures to eliminate those hazards. Now, this is one definition of a competent person that applies to many disciplines on a, on a project. And, uh, and uh, we're certainly talking about trench safety, but this is the one generic definition of a competent person. I might add that there's some input from the National Safety Council with regard to the competent person. The National Safety Council wrote a couple of articles. They made a couple of statements. They said, look, to designate somebody as a, comp as a competent person is not meant to complement an, an, an individual. We don't want to reward someone by making him the head guy on the job to handle our trench issues simply because they show up to work on time. They're always neat and clean. They, they present well to our client. That's not how you would uh, designate the competent person. They, they insist that it not be something that's arbitrarily assigned to an individual to reward them for anything. Instead, the National Safety Council put it this way. The competent person is somebody who's got to be knowledgeable and specifically trained in the requirements under the standard to, do, to, uh, to fulfill legal obligations that OSHA requires. There are specific legal obligations the competent person has to hit Within the Federal Register, which is, a, uh, which is the daily record of uh, information that comes from the federal government in 1989, OSHA said, additionally for the competent person for trench, they said, look, the competent person needs to, uh, for the purpose of the standard, one must have had specific training in and be knowledgeable about soils, the use of protective systems, and the requirements of the standard. If they can't meet that ongoing knowledge, which is what that OSHA means by demonstrable knowledge. OSHA doesn't care that you've got a certificate or a wallet card or a hard hat sticker that says you've had the training. OSHA wants to make sure that the competent person on the job site is knowledgeable, knowledgeable about soils analysis, what protective systems go where, and the requirements under the standard. If you don't know those things, then it's impossible for you to go about your job 
and uh, fulfill the legal obligations required on you. So what things besides the OSHA standard does a competent person need to know? If one only learned what was in the OSHA standard, the competent person would learn, would learn A25, B45, and C80 soils exist, and they would learn the testing for same. However, a competent person needs to know C60 soil, how to define the soil, how to test the soil, what those lateral earth pressures mean, and to always correlate the protective system to the C60 soil to make sure that the protective system is not introduced into an environment that was not rated to withstand. Three times in the OSHA standard, it mentions that three times, and we got to make sure that uh, that we never introduce a, a protective system to an environment that was not rated for. Beyond the standard, earlier, I mentioned tabulated data. Here's what OSHA gives you. The OSHA did a great job on their tables and charts for sloping and benching, timber, and aluminum. However, a competent person needs to know what systems have tabulated data, how to read the tabulated data, how to completely read the tabulated data, what situations might exceed the limitations. So we don't want to just look at the, the stuff that's in bigger font and bold print. We want to look at the fine print to determine spoil pile limitations, surcharge loadings. Some manufacturers of trench boxes even say that the area around a trench should be dewatered three days before you use the box there. That fine print is often overlooked, and we don't want something to happen where you've not followed the, the requirements of the tab data and gotten somebody hurt. Tabulated data also goes into the soil type restrictions, if there are any, and the allowable working depth. The third and last prong of beyond the standard would include the engineering system review. Here's what OSHA says about requirements from a protective system. Basically, what they is anything, anything uh, that is, is not sloping or benching timber or aluminum hydraulics or manufacturer's tabulated data. So anything else that's not those is that. So we probably need to do a better job of, and everybody needs to do a proper job of, defining anything. What does anything consist of? A competent person needs to know what doesn't have tabulated data. When any de well, what deviations require an engineer approval? You need to know what information to communicate to the engineer, and he's got to know the distance away from a, a body of water, a surcharge, railroad, roadway, uh, what, what kind of building might be in the environment that would cause the soil to have a surcharge that could impact the trench. Uh, and that lastly, the competent person needs to know that they should never proceed without a plan uh, that would be defined by the engineer. So by now we've heard why it's important to get the proper training and equipment to do the work safely. We've discussed that there is more than just the OSHA excavation standard that a person needs to know in order to be a competent person. As the week wound down, all of the panelists were asked to give their final thoughts and overall impressions of the week. The final statement was made by the person who started the week, Eric Jagir, who summed up the entire week in one simple message don't be me um because you're probably not going to be as lucky as i was uh you're probably not going to make it out and be able to see your family like i did because most people don't so don't be me and uh you know the most dangerous trench out there in the world we made safe if you plan you get the training and you use the equipment but as soon as you don't do any of those things um they're dangerous and they can cost your life and uh, I don't care if you've been doing, you know, this type of work and working in trenches for three weeks or 33 years. Um, every one of them trenches is different, and 
you never know, no matter how much experience you have, when things are going to go wrong. So uh, you have to have that training. You have to put that safety plan in place um, and, you know, do the job the safe way so you get to go home. Just don't be me. Every change can be safe as long as it is made safe. You don't need to know everything out there. What you need to understand is why and when, and there are resources that can help you with what and how. All you need to do is just let us know where. This has been Behind the Standards with United Rentals. Should you have any questions about this episode or have a topic you would like us to cover, feel free to email us at urtspodcast at ur.com. I am Rick Plosinski, and on behalf of United Rentals, thanks for listening. Have a great day and stay safe.